Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Trish has already made a comment. Ask us almost anything. Trying to find pictures of love cakes that are appropriate. If you're going to that degree, is that a red flag? Like just maybe someone else. No one's breaking Wait, uh, into your uh, into your bedroom wearing your pajamas. Yeah, and I know another stalker. Well, I'll bet there's a lot of good vitamins in there. The good old days weren't always good. The serial number on it matches the provenance or the manifest of one of the planes in Flight 19. The dog in the 1970s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I can't do any voices. Views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Astonishing Legends podcast are those of those individuals and do not necessarily reflect the view of Astonishing Legends productions or any entities affiliated with Astonishing Legends or guests of the show. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Cook Unity, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is dedicated to the memory of John Reed, Herbert Vonner, and Christine Hauser. In our last episode, we took you to the Amazonian jungle to uncover the astonishing legend of the lost city of Akakor, a story shared with the world by the journalist Carl Brueger on behalf of Akakor's last living chieftain, a man known as Tatunkanara. We were joined for that story by our new friend, journalist and fellow at the 135-year-old Explorers Club, Kinga Phillips. Kinga's expertise is invaluable in covering this particular story because, unlike us, she's been to Brazil, specifically to Tatucanara's house in Barcelos. She interviewed him in person in 2019 for her Travel Channel show, Lost in the Wild. It's been nearly 50 years since Brueger's book, Chronicle of Akakor, was published. And in the clarity of hindsight, we know now that at least three people went looking for Akakor in 1980, 84, and 86. And after hiring Tatunka Nara as a guide, none of those three ever made it home. Two of them were never found, and the skull of one was found by a tourist two years later. He had been shot in the back of the head at close range. All of this begs the question, why? What happened to these unfortunate seekers? Were they slain to protect the secrets of Akakor? Or was the motivation for their disappearances much more sinister? Kinga will share what her experience with Tatunka Nara was like tonight. After that, you can draw your own conclusions about not only him, but the lost city of Akakor itself. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. When he found the skull and pulled it out, there was a hole in it and a bullet fell out of it. He knew right then that Vonner had been shot in the back of the head. Summarized from Brazilian tour guide Gilbert Castro's personal account of the discovery of Herbert Vonner's skull in 1986. Join us tonight for part two of the fascinating story of the lost city of Akakor with our returning special guest, Kinga Phillips. And we're back. That we are, folks. It's good to be back. We've got an exciting show for you tonight. One I feel is a little bit different from anything we've done before. And that's saying something after nearly 10 years. Yeah, I'm not convinced we've covered a legend that's taken a turn like this one before. Mm. And we're going to get to that here shortly. But a few very quick announcements first. 
Yes, indeed. But before that, I think we have covered stories that didn't turn out the way we thought they would, which I think adds to the mystery and excitement. Now, as for the announcements, first, our dear friend Miranda Merrick has just finished posting season nine of The Midnight Library. It's just over four years old, and she's passed over five million listens now. So if you haven't checked it out, now is the time. Yes, and our newest show, Scared All the Time, has just premiered its second season with an outstanding, supersized two-hour episode on Stalkers, Ew. which they, of course, posted the day after <laughs> Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, that was that was a good one. Can't shake it. Yeah, I, I am somewhat obsessed with the last case they covered there. Freaking bizarre. I'd never heard of it. Uh, but people must love it because Scared All the Time is about to bust the door down on 100,000 downloads wow. after just 11 episodes. And season two is only just now getting started, so check it out. Yeah, well, folks, if you haven't heard it, it's very different from Astonishing Legends, so if you're looking for something of a different flavor of Kool-Aid, find and subscribe to Scared All the Time, wherever you get your podcasts. And, and let's not forget the newest offering from the Astonishing Legends Network, Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf, premiering a little mm. over a month from now, near the end of March 2024. That show, like every show on our network, is also very, very different from Astonishing Legends, uh, The Midnight Library, and Scared All the Time. It's more Ooh, a Wonder Years meets Richard Haddam's rare first edition <laughs> paranormal book collection, narrated by the man himself. So stay tuned for that, and we'll let you know as the date gets closer closer when it's coming out exactly. All right, last note, folks. If you haven't had a chance yet and you're looking for a somewhat strange but entertaining new podcast to listen to, check out our friend Mark DeAndre's new show, You're My Density, wherever you get your podcasts. You may remember him as a frequent early guest of Astonishing Legends during our first year. Yes, uh, Mark's striking out on his own, so it's not officially affiliated with us, but he's still a good friend, and his show is, well, mm. in a word, weird. I, I really <laughs> like it, but it's very stream of consciousness in a very Mark way, so you AL old-timers may remember what he's like. You, you'll get it once you hear him again, if you go check it out. Man, that is a lot of shows. It is a veritable bouillabaisse poo-poo platter of uh, variety and delicious content. Yes. Uh, so has everyone got it? Okay, that's the Midnight Library, scared all the time. Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf coming out in four or five weeks. Yes, and our friend Mark's show, You're My Density. Uh, never let it be said, we're not giving you new stuff to check out. Okay, it's time to return to Akakor. Let's make some popcorn and get Kinga on the line. This story is about to get nuts. Everyone, please welcome journalist, television host, and Explorers Club fellow Kinga Phillips back to the show. Kinga, are you there? I am here. We are so glad to have you back. People have been sending us a lot of emails, a lot of comments on socials. They really enjoyed part one. And I think that the best part about it was that it was really just a setup for what we're going to talk about tonight. I am so excited to talk about part two because, like you said, it's nuts. It's nuts. I think one of the things that people should think about with their notebooks as they're going through this, the people that like actually contemplate the folkloric origins of a story like this, and that's something that we brought up over the years on our show. It's like, what is the seed of this? What's the origin of this story, the Pied Piper or the Beast of Jevoudan or whatever, what really happened in the beginning that led the story to become the thing that it became later? And the origin for this is pretty out there compared to a lot of the things that we usually cover. Even Tatunka Nara is saying that this is crazy. He says that, you yeah. don't go in the jungle, that's crazy. These stories are crazy. The West German investigator is saying this story is crazy. Everyone's on board with it being crazy. It really is. It's like one big infomercial. It's like every time you think you've got <laughs> enough crazy, but wait, there's more. <laughs> there's more crazy. I mean, at the heart of this, though, is it's an adventure. There's tragedy. There's excitement. It's everything rolled into one, as we said in part one. But we always look for, is there any weirdness or is there anything that's outside the bounds of 
normal existence, and it was promised here. And so we have to look at that angle too. Is there something that is uh, somehow more mysterious than just a crime being committed here? So if it's a secret and it's working, then <laughs> we still don't know if the lost city is out there, right? They haven't told us yet. Exactly. They're still discovering lost cities uh, with new technology, like remote sensing from satellites or LIDAR. And we're discovering things all the time. And will something pop up here? As crazy as the stories are and the legends, every once in a while, you will get some proof that, you know what, not all this story is fabricated. There's a nugget of truth here or something strange did pop up. But I, I start to wonder about this case. Is there something there that's, uh, you know what I'm saying? It could be two separate mysteries happening. Well, you know, I think the psychology behind it is interesting too, because as you said, I think those who came and some of those who didn't come back would definitely 100% have believed that this was exactly as it was presented. Right. And at the same time, we are talking about one of the most wild, foreboding, unforgiving regions on the planet, the Amazonian jungle, so much of which today is completely unexplored by, by modern people. You know, there are indigenous tribes that live there, mm -hmm. but there is so much that we haven't seen. We don't actually know what's there. So right. again, as we had said in part one, is it plausible that there's something there? Sure. Right. Do illustrate just how remote and hard to get to these places are, even the mid-sized cities or the larger population centers. I believe Manaus is kind of an isolated population center or city, right? You cannot, there's no roads to it. You either have to come by boat or plane, correct? Yes. And we came into Manaus when we were there. And then you can either, Barcelos is the second one where a lot of the story takes place or where it originates from because then it spreads out deep into the jungle. Right. But even to get to Barcelos, your two options are to take a boat that's about 35 hours mm. upriver, the Rio Negra. And then your other option, which is what we opted for, is you can take a flight. And it's kind of a, a white knuckle flight because you yeah. are flying over this stunning jungle where there is nothing but just green and then patches of river. And you land on this tiny little runway at something that maybe you could call an airport. I have yeah. one picture of JJ, my co-host, and he's laying down on a brick wall and I have it on Facebook and it just says Delta Lounge Barcelos. <laughs> <laughs> that was the airport there. <laughs> Yeah. Right. To make the journey, you have to be committed or already live there. It either you're wanting to get away, perhaps, as uh, the central character of our story here may have wanted to do, or you're on a quest either to find something, uh, lost treasure, lost knowledge, an ancient city, or to find somebody you care about. There's all these driving factors to really push people into this heart of darkness because it's not something you would normally want to go to that's on the brochure. It's quite treacherous and uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, it's very hot and sweaty. You have to, you want to be, you have to want to be there. And images of uh, one of my favorite movies keeps popping up: "A Sorcerer" from William Friedkin. I don't well, know if yes, you've ever seen I it. Mentioned that to you. Yeah, the and the uh, it, just yeah. one of the characters, um, somebody who's there who is a German national, turns to one of the characters and says, uh, "Not what you expected." And uh, the <laughs> the French national says, "It's exactly what I expected." <laughs> so you. You have to know what it's going to be like, but that may not be the case with uh, one of our characters here, uh, John Reed, who I think he wrote his sister saying, or more curiously, she said she had dreams, nightmares that her brother was saying, this is not what I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. That part is curious in that if that's also probably what drove her to do this tremendous investigation where she had no means or really time or money 
to do this, just a burning desire to find out what happened to her brother. Very much so. For over well over 30 years, she searched for her brother. All right, folks, for people that don't remember what we talked about two weeks ago, what brought us to this point in this two-part series? The person at the center of this story is Tatunka Nara, and the place at the center of this story is Akakor, this lost city, lost subterranean city at this point, even though at some point it had structures above ground at the point that Nara comes along. We are led to believe that now it's all been moved underground, but people are still living there. It's still an active place. So he lived in Brazil, and he had told people of Akakor, the culture there, and his lineage connecting him to the last chieftain. German journalist Karl Brueger became aware of the story and came from Rio, where he lived, to meet with Tatunka. And Tatunka relayed 12 full audio tapes of the history of his people, the Uga Mangalala, and his personal history to Carl on those tapes through a series of interviews. Tatunka eventually offered to take Brueger to Akakor himself, and Carl agreed. But after a long, arduous, nearly completed journey along the river Yaku, if I'm saying that right, their canoe capsizes and he loses camera equipment, half their food, and their medical stores. So at that point, they have to return to Manaus. Tatunka angrily leaves them, apparently, and heads into the jungle wearing war paint and a loincloth to find his people, the Ugamangalala, and presumably Akakor, which they were close enough to that that Tatunka thought he could hike there on foot. Brueger never saw Tatunka again. Now, that was in October of 1972. Brueger uses the tapes of Tatunka to write his book, The Chronicle of Akakor, named for what Tatunka had said was the written history of his people that had been lost. And pointedly, no one had seen that except for a priest had seen a section of it, I think, or some of it, who then mysteriously died in a plane crash. It's just just crazy. The story just (laughs) keeps going. So uh, we talked about this history in part one, but it's incredibly detailed, this cultural history that he outlaid, beginning with the Uga Mangalala creation myth, going all the way back to 600,000 years B.C., The recounting of their history continues to the present day, which at the time was 1972, with elaborate maps of temples, cities, and structures, and details of every recorded conflict encountered by Tatunka's people. In January of 1977, Brueger publishes his version of the Chronicle of Akakor based on what Tatunka told him in interviews, and adds some analysis at the end where he looks at known historical events that conflict with Tatunka's narrative, but none of them apparently in enough of a way for Brueger to conclusively, at least at the point that he published the book, call Tatunka's story false. So that's the backstory. That's what happened in part one. If we could make the show that short, we would be on TikTok, uh, but that's not what part <laughs> one, part one's an hour and 45 minutes. But, <laughs> but here we are, it's part two, and it's time to take this to the next level. So now we're gonna talk a little bit about the chain of events that unfolded after the book was published. The book was actually published in January of 1977, right at the top of the year. I looked for statistics on it, how good of a a seller it was. We know that it was very popular. You actually, the databases that tell you that information, you can't get to unless you're, it's kind of like the legal LexisNexis thing. You have to pay to join or it's only for secret people. So I don't know what, how many copies of it actually sold, but we know that it was a popular book. We know that people were drawn to a new story of a previously unknown lost city. That's something we talked about, El Dorado, these other lost cities. And as Forrest has said just recently, lots of uh, new cities are being uncovered thanks to LIDAR and satellite technology. Now, things are coming out that uh, we didn't know were there. So there's still places to be found. This place had a complex history. It was rich with detail. And the idea that people were still alive in it, that's one component that I don't think any of the other lost cities have. 
unless you're going full hollow earth or flat earth and people are on the bottom or something. I don't know. Right. The seventies, <laughs> it's the era of in search of, and there was also combined with that, a real sense of spiritual awakening, the age of Aquarius. People were looking for more of a spiritual fulfillment, lost knowledge, things that were common of the era. So I could see the popularity of this book sparking a lot of interest and you get a, a few hardy souls that are willing to go down there. And had it been <laughs> somewhere that was more accessible, you would have had a lot more people show up. In this case, it was just, a, I guess, a handful of people, the ones that got in trouble, certainly. And you look at the people who actually did go, a lot of Western Europeans, Swiss, Germans, <laughs> people who will who will uh, venture down there. It's like, wow, that's where you chose to go. Okay, it's quite a commitment. But again, these are people who are also fueled not just for rest and relaxation and some uh, cultural tourism sites, but they're also fueled, I think, by wanting a spiritual awakening. And I think that's what we're seeing here, which adds another layer to it, because perhaps that fuels them a little bit more in that they're ready and willing to believe. Definitely a specific demographic. Exactly. And people that, who just have a little bit more of a push to that, especially we see this a lot. I believe John Reed had also been involved in the field of UFOs uh, in, mm -hmm. in that kind of research. Wrote a book about it. He did. I looked for that. His name is too common for me to find it. Yeah. I don't know if it's out there. But, I don't know uh, if it was actually published, but he did. He yeah. played around with it. Yeah, but he wrote a book about UFOs. I yeah. Love I mean, so you go from, you bounce from one to the other, and this was perhaps the latest one. And that's one angle of the story that at least Tatunka was saying, is that, well, uh, or I think it was the part-time U.S. counselor agent, an American, Fish. James R. Fish, yeah, oh, who Fish, said, James like, well, Fish. I think he found an interesting scenario. Or, yes. And he just stayed there. It's like, that's a little thin. And the other thing you're seeing from authorities here is that they're just not invested in finding out the truth for whatever reason. We're going to delve into that a little bit more. But nobody seems to be wanting to research or look into this too deeply or even do not only due diligence, any diligence with this. And it must be so tremendously frustrating for John's sister, Sandy, who went down there and that just nobody seems to want to bother with this. And that's one of the fascinating aspects of this story for me too, is why aren't people looking at this? This was the 1980s. So the book came out in 1976, 1977. And then people really started showing up. I wouldn't say in mass, kind of like Scott, you said, how popular with this book. I mean, I don't know that it was on the New York Times bestseller list, but right. I think amongst certain demographics, people like, who, like Forrest said, definitely lean towards this exploration, this possibly paranormal something that that's out of the realm of the normal world there was such a longing for that during that time so in those circles it hit pretty hard and those are the people who came and Forrest you're also correct that I have a lot of notes on all of these people from the project that we did there and all the research we did when you start to look there are similarities in personality and background and the people who would have gone as you would expect because right. as you pointed out this is a very imposing environment it's very difficult to get to you know this isn't a holiday in the caribbean where you're laying on the beach there are bugs there are spiders there are snakes there is heat it's really hard to get to lots of things want to kill you there and very quickly so you know it, it's kind of funny because when i read fish's words and they resonated to me too when he said oh john might have found an interesting situation there and just stayed, which is what he wrote to John's parents mm -hmm. or his family after he had been gone for a while. And you think, 
you know, even if someone really loves the wilderness, I love the wilderness. I love the jungle. But to live in the jungle or just to be like, see you later, I'm going to go exploring. Mm -hmm. That is a whole other level of nuts, as we've said. This is, unless you are indigenous and you are well-versed, well-trained, just extraordinary, comfortable in the most harrowing environments, that is not a picnic in the park. You would need a lot of supplies to be able to survive there. It strikes me that explanation for John Reed, who was one of the three victims we're going to be talking about tonight, who never made it home, that explanation, it's akin to what you see when you, if you watch true crime or you listen to true crime when it's Dateline or whatever. There's always these investigators that come out and they say, oh, well, she probably ran away from home. She ran, you know, lots of, it happens all the time. You would think that every phone call and there's a thousand investigations where when the people report their kid missing, the kid just ran away from home. And in this case, you would be like, when someone says, the guy I know disappeared into the jungle, they're just like, oh, a million people go in the jungle and stay. Don't worry about it. It happens all the time. It's like, no. That's not what's happening. We heard that a lot on Lost in the Wild to the point where I remember I got up. I was so angry that we were in India and I walked Mm -hmm. out of this police officer's room because he said, oh, you know, people just go off into the Himalayas and they just hang out and stay. And I was like, you big fat jerk. No, they don't. They're (laughs) dead. And you didn't do your due diligence. And I think this is one of those scenarios as well. And having been to Barcelos, I'll tell you that even now – I would be shocked if there are thorough investigations being done, you know, on anything that's committed in that area where back in the eighties, it really was the wild, wild West and no man's land. And, you know, we'll get into this as well. We do think that there are some cover-ups that were happening, but even without cover-ups happening, when people disappear in the jungle, what are you going to do? Like yeah. send in search dogs, you know, like, yeah. what, what are you going to do? That's like, I mean, it's the same thing as lost at sea. You know, there's a point at which you can mobilize all the airplanes and the boats for a few days, but there's a point at which it's like, we're probably never going to solve this. Exactly. You were never going to figure this out. And mother nature is going to take back whatever is offered to it. And there will be no trace. Once again, we're fortunate to have a guest who is totally on the ball, involved with so many outrageously cool projects, and makes it easy for us to direct the audience to one single, comprehensive place to find out about everything they're doing. And you know what one thing makes this all possible? They have a website? Exactly. You know, if anyone is interested in all of Kinga's latest endeavors, causes, appearances, whatever it is, all they have to do is go to kingaphillips.com. There you can find her recent news, bio, videos, gallery, blogs, organizations, everything Kinga. And no, you don't have to be an award-winning TV journalist, writer, producer, and explorer to get all of that or think you need it. You out there can have all of that working for you easily and cost-effectively with a Squarespace website. And of course, Kinga has her social media platforms, but a Squarespace website can tie everything together and make it all work in harmony. A lot of people think having a social media presence is enough to publicize what you're doing, but a lot of the time, we find it's not. Not if you're serious and totally committed to enriching and growing your brand. And it's not an either-or proposition. Squarespace already has all of the tools you need for social media integrations with all of the leading social platforms, so your customers can keep up to date with the latest from your website and even buy your products directly from Instagram and Facebook. Just like the integration with an all-in-one app for storytellers called Unfold. Oh, yeah. 
Unfold helps you easily create beautiful social content with photo and video templates. Add your text and transform your content into a storyboard you can share with your audience. You just choose an aesthetic reels template, import your clips and photos into the video editor, and Unfold does the rest. You can add effects, fonts, and even music. Create, export, and schedule your social media content in just a few minutes. Wow, that is next level. You'll be on your way to becoming a viral influencing sensation in no time. <laughs> well, all right. At least you'll stand out from the crowd, which is what Squarespace is all about. Look, folks, it's a new year, and it's time you kicked your online presence into gear with a new look and easy yet powerful functionality. And you can do that with a Squarespace website. To see how easy and stylish you and your content can be, just head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So, I heard you were talking about an amazing, Tony, exclusive, and extraordinary culinary experience in Manhattan. Something about eating Raul? No, no, no. <laughs> Not the 80s black comedy cult classic, which, by the way, I used to stay up late watching without my parents' permission. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, no, I was talking about eating at Raul's. Ah, yes, of course. You were gushing about the steak frites and how the frites that came with your Cook Unity meal were so fresh and delicious, it was like being at one of your favorite high-end restaurants. It certainly was, and I, and I actually still remember that dish. It was called the grilled skirt steak with herbed frites mm. and roasted tomatoes with tarragon aioli, and it's in constant rotation with our Cook Unity menu order. Oh, yeah. I've already clocked several favorites and some favorite chefs, like shrimp and smoked andouille sausage, jambalaya, with charred zucchini from Chef Akhtar Nawab. And speaking of frites, Chef Cedric Nicholas's classic Quebecois poutine with applewood smoked bacon is now a go-to snack favorite. Look, Cook Unity isn't just for main meals, you know. And let me ask everyone out there, have you ever paid attention to a chef with a fresh meal delivery service before? I, I know I haven't. Cook Unity is the first chef-to-use service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it's also cheaper than other delivery options. It is cheaper because I've talked to friends who've had fancy folks meal services, and I can tell you that there is a difference when the meals are chef-crafted or locally sourced because you can taste the difference in quality and freshness. Also, they heat up so much better than from Frozen, and that alone I'd pay for. Cook Unity is unlike other meal services. Cook Unity is a chef collective, bringing exciting culinary talent straight to your table. And there's no cooking required for a chef-quality dining experience right at home. Yes, chef. Sorry, I couldn't help but stick in a little MasterChef reference in there. Uh, look, nice. but since every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities, and because every meal has the chef's name on it, I believe that ensures the quality because reputations are on the line. But really, for me, what sells it is the variety. I can have dishes from around the world like they're coming from the finest restaurants in the biggest cities and all from the comfort of my own home. There are hundreds of dishes to choose from, and the menu is updated constantly, along with options for seven different dietary preferences. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. And choosing what you'd like to try next can be the hardest and most delicious part of this culinary experience. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com AL or enter code AL before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code AL or going to cookunity.com slash AL. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Angie Bratzel. Now back to the show. 
I think the first time that we touched on this phenomenon would be the story of Roanoke and the theory that people- The lost colony. Yeah, the lost colony of Roanoke and the theory that people, as they said back then, had gone native. And there are some appealing aspects to that as people at the time would say, it's like, well, you get to live with people who have embraced their environment. You know, yes, they get attacked by other tribes and uh, they're visiting violence on each other. But for the most part, you don't have the worries and the daily trudgery that you do with European life. And so that becomes appealing. But in the case of Roanoke, they had no choice. If the story plays out, they are without supplies. Governor John White is not coming back a couple of years. Well, he came, but the the water was a little rough, so he left. Right, so you're you're basically, well, (laughs) either if to survive, we have to live as the indigenous folks do. In this case, the only person that's really kind of embracing this and weirdly gets left alone is the other thing, is Tatunkanara, who may be escaping for other reasons other than just, well, it's kind of cool here and I like the people. There are other psychological things going on with him, I believe, which facilitated him needing to stay there, just outright wanting to, but he fits in. And the other weird thing is that reading over all of uh, you know the, the accounts and, and other stories is that people are there, the indigenous people, they just leave him alone. And that I think there's something that he's giving off in some way that they're not bothering with him. They Everyone in Barcelos knows of him. But nobody, it's like, yeah, we don't really, yeah, we don't tatunka much. We just kind of leave him be because there's something that's imposing. So it's a weird kind of acceptance. That was another odd aspect of this story in how the people there reacted to him just setting up shop. And well, he's just a fixture here now. And we saw that firsthand. We talked to those people. In the 1980s, when he was freshly there, there are interviews with people who basically said, we weren't comfortable with him. We were kind of scared of him. We didn't trust him. But I think you have to really put yourself in the mindset of someone living in Barcelos, Brazil, this tiny little village where you are making a living, you know, working the land, essentially. Your main concerns are keeping yourself fed, keeping yourself alive, keeping yourself and your family healthy. If there's crazy guy down the street who thinks he's, you know, an Indian chieftain, okay, just don't kill me and and we'll kind of do our own thing, you know? Right. Like you're not really going to start fights with people because the way that's going to end, and especially if you don't trust someone and you don't trust their integrity and you don't know if they're a good guy, that's probably not going to go in your favor. So people would just kind of keep their mouth shut, not say anything and just be like, okay, Mr. Crazy Pants over there, you do you and I'll do me. (laughs) Right. The reason I would point that out or the point I'm trying to make is that I think in other perhaps cultures and societies, especially maybe in the North American Wild West, as we're trying to relate it here, is that if you come to town and you're the troublemaker, it's easy for you to disappear and that's usually the case is that, yeah, some person who showed up was making waves or just being weird and we don't want him here. He's the one who goes away. Here's just an odd thing that I think with Tatunka, he is fortunate that they just kind of let him be. And I believe, uh, you know, he built a three-room Oasis hotel, if you want to call it that, or just kind of a way station. And so they're just letting him do his thing. I think is rightly as you said, it's better to not mess with this guy. Yeah, I think they're afraid of him. They know he's a violent man. They do. And there are interviews with people that flat out said he was violent. We didn't trust him. But there's also another ominous layer to all of this that they don't believe that Tatunka was entirely unprotected. They Mm -hmm. think that he had some 
connections that could potentially be nefarious that were protecting him and shielding him. You're, you're so right for us that if he was just a troublemaker and they thought that he was kind of a bad egg, maybe he could have disappeared into the Amazon. But right. I think people there knew that if they pulled that thread, it wasn't just a Tunka that they were pulling, that there were other things and right. entities More repercussions. attached to that thread. After the book comes out, this is when Tatuka becomes Tatunka the guide, who is the person that will take people to find Akakor. It being a legend that came straight from his mouth, he is the person you're going to go see because nobody else was talking about Akakor until he came along. It's not like you come into town and there's 10 places with shingles out that say, we'll take you to Akakor. Yeah. It's you got to see Tatunka, right? You got to go to him. So the folks are starting to come and they're going to pay him to go. One of these folks is John Reed, who shows up November 21st, 1980. He flies into Manaus with a couple thousand dollars and a very small collection of items, naked and afraid style, although he did have his clothes. And uh, he was he was a true adventurer, like we're talking about, a seeker in the 70s, sense of the word. He had written a book on UFOs. He was an early pioneer in organics with a seed business, organic seed business. And apparently he wanted to help Tatunka's people, the Uga Mangalala, because he wanted to help them avoid the loss of their culture, their identity and way of life. So he's going to go out there, I guess, and try to figure out how to prevent them from uh, having to give in to settlers and encroaching cultures, which are moving into the Amazon for a lot of reasons. Now, according to an article in the New York Times by Douglas France, this is from July of 1990, Reed wrote a letter to Carl Brueger, the author of The Chronicle of Akakor, on November 24th in 1980, and he said that he and Tatunka had met up in Manaus, and then he went north with him to Barcelos, where Tatunka lived, and from there they were going to Akakor. In this letter, even Reed seemed a little incredulous about whether or not Tatunka was the real deal, writing, quote, is he a liar or a prince, question mark. And that's one of the things that I find interesting. A lot of these people that cross paths with him they seem to know that something's not quite right. And maybe they've got that gut feeling and that instinct, but by the same token, it's very tantalizing, this lost city and this chieftain, and what if you found this, the fame and the glory and whatever. Even if you're trying to be altruistic, there's still something. I'm I'm the one that's going to find this lost city. Even if I'm going to merge into it and never come out and tell anybody I found it. I want to find it for me. And you know, yeah. in a way, and I'm not I'm not implying that Reed was narcissistic. I'm just saying that that's an exciting mission to go on, you know. I want to find and, it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like who who doesn't want to do that? And Spiegel International has an article too where they mention a letter that Reed sent to his parents 14 days later in which he said, quote, I believe more than ever to Tunka's honesty and good ways. Don't give him any trouble. He is my good friend. I will possibly return in the spring. John Reed was last seen in early December of 1980. His visa expired a little less than a year later, and the U.S. consular agent that we mentioned earlier, James Fish, contacted Reed's mom to let her know that the visa was expired, and he told her that for $1,500, she could hire Tatunka Nara to go find her son. Yeah. So, and what Tatuka had been saying was that he had took Reed out to find Akakor for whatever reason, I guess they didn't make it. And he was like, we have to return. And John refused to go with him. He told him he would stay behind with almost no food or gear and find Akakor on his own. He refused to leave and in fact ran into the jungle and hid from Tatunka when Tatunka was ready to leave. That's what Tatunka said happened. And that was the last time that he saw John Reed. In an interview with Sandy Reed, his sister, she said mm -hmm. that he found the book of the Chronicles of Akakor in a library. 
And I remember thinking about that and I was like, oof, man, that moment, if you could have, that would have just changed the course of his life. If he had just yeah. never, yeah. oh, what's, what's that book? And then he was, as you said, in contact with Carl Brueger. And I personally think to your point that people get this almost, it, it's not narcissism. It's a desire to discover something that's been undiscovered, which Carl Brueger himself had. He went mm -hmm. to look for Akakor in 1972 and he was actually going to go again. But then John Reed got in touch with Carl Brueger, wrote to him, actually met him in Rio. And John, according to Sandy, had even been in Peru looking for Akakor. And Sandy in the interview, which I watched, which was really well done, it's in a Facebook series called The Curse of Akakor. And right. they were there right before we were. And they did an interview with Sandy Reed. She wouldn't come and be on our show, which I understood after watching this because she had done so much. And it was such an emotional, I think, turmoil for her to be a part of this that she wouldn't come and be a part of our show, even though we asked her to. And it wasn't out yet. So you didn't really know why she wouldn't say yes exactly. to you guys. We didn't yeah. know. But having watched it, I actually, it made me cry watching. Yeah. But she yeah. said that John was actually looking for Akaim. And when he met Tatunka, this was kind of like, wow, so now I've got my chance. And Akaim is one of the other the three cities. lost cities, yes. right? The okay. main ones being Akakor and Akaim. So they're, they're right. not interchangeable, but sometimes when you hear Tatunka talk, they do become a little interchangeable, which is really interesting because that's what I got out of him when, when I had a conversation with him. But yes, okay. so John went into the jungle with Tatunka. These letters that came back, apparently were written by John, as Sandy said, that his it was handwriting, the handwriting was consistent. Although I have to wonder, and just as a journalist and someone who has done investigative work, who writes the words, don't give him grief, he is my good friend? Why would, that's almost yeah, like a premonition. Yeah. Why would you write mm. that? And even if yeah. that was written by him, I almost feel like there was someone over his shoulder being like, you know, maybe you should kind of put that in there. I mean, who knows? Like, maybe you should just say that. Why would you say that? And again, we yeah. go back to, and I've done at Wilderness Survival Work, the jungle is a harrowing place. And as you pointed out, John did not have a lot of supplies. So you're telling me that this guy gets dropped off in the jungle with his guide. They are now days away from Barcelos, which in and of itself is a tiny blip of a little city in the middle of the Amazon. And he's like, you know what? Go without me. And apparently he said to Tatunka, come back and meet me here. There are different versions in a month or in three months. And right. there are people that saw him and John, there are local indigenous people that saw John and Tatunka going upriver and then Tatunka coming back by himself. Tatunka's story is that he ran off into the jungle. Who would actually do that? For three yeah. months, I'm going to live in this jungle with zero connection to anybody else? Come on. Yeah, and John was a true believer. He was the one of these victims that had the tattoo from yeah. the flag of the Akakor flag on his chest, the right? The sun rising out of the water, yes. Which would be a symbol that Tatunka would have brought to light for people to see. All the flags, the maps of the cities, the locations, that's all, as far as we know, our only source for that is Tatunka. Yes. So he had that tattoo before he even got there. And so if he was looking in Peru, Barcelos, which also, by the way, I was really surprised to see this. I only just learned this today, was uh, the world capital of aquarium yeah. 
colorful <laughs> aquarium fish. Yep. Like fish. I was like, that is yeah. so cool. Cause when I was a kid, I had neon tetras. They might've come from there, mm-hmm. even though now they're being farmed and grown in other places. So the, the trade has gone down by 70 or 80% or something. But back at the time, that's when, if you had pretty fish in your aquarium, apparently they, a lot of them came from Barcelos, mm-hmm. which is pretty wild. After the horrible rubber trade, which we also talked about in part one. So the question is, though, geographically, what's interesting to me is that Barcelos and where Tatunka lived was so far east of the border with Peru and where Acacor supposedly was. It's like it's almost like how far can I get away from this when and I'm going to guide people to this place? Like, why wouldn't you be closer to the border with Peru if that's where he said it was? There's a part of me that really wonders when you really kind of look at the timeline of all of this, right? So Tatunka basically popped up in Brazil about 1968, claiming to be Tatunka Nara, the son of a German nurse and the chieftain of Acticor. And then Carl Brueger meets him around 1970-ish, starts doing all these interviews. The book comes out in 1976. Let's say he created this story, right? We don't know. But let's say yeah. that he made up this story and he was like, wow, this is a really great story. I really like this. Then he meets yeah. Carl Brueger, who he didn't really expect to meet. And then the story blows up and goes global. Right. Tatuka could never have predicted that. He couldn't have. Right. And right. whether that was good or bad, he didn't expect it. But at that point, he has to roll with it. And we'll get into you know the, the, the mental state of Tatunka and some backstory and all those sort of other things. But for the purpose of following this thread... Now this has blown up and people are coming out there. So at this point, Tatunka is rolling with it. And he's like, wait a minute, this is actually kind of good for business because now people right. are coming out here and they're hiring me because I'm kind of cool and I'm sort of a bit of a celebrity in this in these circles. And they're hiring me to go find Akakor. So it doesn't right. really matter whether it really exists or whether it would be more logistically reasonable to go from Peru because he's based in Barcelos and he's like, yeah, you know, this is where I am. So if I'm going to take people and guide them, I'm going to take them from here. What would somebody do, somebody like Tatunka, especially who's a foreigner, do for a living there besides farming tropical fish? I mean, I know he's got that little bit of a uh, bed and breakfast situation going on with the Hotel Oasis, which again is just a three-room hostel of sorts. Like, how would he be supporting himself in the region? So guiding was a big thing because this is kind of like the gateway to the Amazon. So people would come, they would come to Barcelos, they would have boats there, and then people would go up and and kind of explore the jungle. You had the tropical fish trade. And then I'm not sure, honestly, I would have to check this if it was booming as much in the 1980s as it is now. But right now, Barcelos is a huge fishing destination. People mm-hmm. come and they catch like the, the Paraiba and these huge Amazonian fish and they right. go out on these river boats, which is what we stayed on. So it's really cool because the riverbank there in Barcelos is lined with all of these old looking colorful river boats. It's really kind of beautiful in a dilapidated sort of way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you hire these boats and you can go out and stay, you know, for a week out on the rivers and you're fishing for these giant fish. There are pink river dolphins. We saw them when we were there. It's an extraordinary environment. So the guiding, I think, was was his big ticket item. And then did he also get kind of financial compensation from another source, which could have led to some nefarious activities? We don't know. Where did he get money to build a hotel? Was his guiding business that good? (laughs) Yeah. Are there that many people to guide? The other thing, $1,500, his fee, apparently, at that time would be quite a lot of money and would get you a long ways in in that area, wouldn't it? 
that was a lot of money. Fifteen hundred dollars yeah. for a guide, yeah, especially nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. John has disappeared. He's not coming back. Uh, Tatunka's telling people that the Indios are seeing a blonde white man living in the jungle somewhere, and that's he's passing that information on to uh, Reed's family. He also told someone that Reed was living with a tribe when he got too close to a woman bathing in a river and her husband killed him in a jealous rage. So now he's introducing the possibility of death. In the middle of all this, with John being gone in 1983, Jacques Cousteau comes to the region. Folks of certain ages might not remember who Jacques Cousteau was. How could you was. not know who Jacques Cousteau is? <laughs> I know, I hero. know. I know, but, you know, it's one of those things that I do wonder if people have heard. Because there's no trace of him anymore. You don't see yeah. anything. You don't see reruns. You don't see anything about yeah, the, him. The but Life Aquatic with uh, us, Steve Zissou, I think, would be the, yeah, the, the yeah, most recent exactly. reference. And people probably don't even know that was based on no. him. No. Uh, yeah. So... Cousteau was an amazing explorer. I mean, Kinga, you could probably describe him better than I can. Oceanographer and researcher. I mean, he was the father of modern day scuba diving and research. I mean, I have the reruns. You can actually find them on YouTube, The Voyage of the Calypso, which was his famous boat. And I have all of his books upstairs in my bedroom. And he was the first person that basically gave us a view of what it looks like under the oceans. But he didn't just explore the oceans. He explored all over the world. I mean, he was everywhere from Africa to up the Amazon to, you know, the Marquesas. Like he, he went everywhere to the Antarctic. He was the legendary modern day at that time explorer. And of course, easy to parody because of his French accent. And red now beret, we are seeing the, 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 yeah, the stocking yes, and his red and cap. All that. So Cousteau comes to the region in a special entitled The New El Dorado Invaders and Exiles, which aired in 1984. We've got a link to this because the YouTube user Henry Stones has posted this. He only got 184 subscribers, so hit him up, folks. Start subscribing. This is really cool that he took the time to put this up there. It's an hour and 40 minutes, and he apparently captured it off of a laser disc, a man after my own heart. Um, it's just amazing to watch this episode, but about 55 minutes into it, if you cue it up to that point, you will see one Tatunka Nara who has been hired as a guide by Jean-Michel Cousteau, Jacques' son, to do some land-based exploration. It's just amazing to watch. The other thing is that I love about Cousteau, which I had forgotten, is he just he doesn't pull any punches about things that mankind is doing wrong. Yeah. Even back in those early days, he does a lot of coverage on the gold mining. It's actually what brought the gold mining to my attention, which is still an issue there. He would he would talk to different tribes and indigenous people, and it's very much like you're there. And there's not a lot of assumptions. It's just amazing. It's an amazing, amazing thing to see. So I would say watch that no matter what. But in the middle of it, you will see Tatunka. And Tatunka is guiding Jean-Michel Cousteau, who's still with us, uh, around at that point. Jacques has passed away some time ago. But it's really cool. And just watch all the Cousteau. Any Cousteau you can find on YouTube, I would say watch yes, it. Yes, um, I second that. By the time this is happening in 1983... John Reed is already gone. He's missing when Tatunka is guiding Jean-Michel Cousteau through the Amazon. Mm-hmm. He's potentially with somebody who allegedly might have disappeared a person. Yeah. There's that to know, which I thought was pretty interesting. By 1989, the West German version of the FBI, the BKA, or Bundeskriminalamt, informed Reed's family that they believed he was dead. 
This was the same year, by the way, the Berlin Wall fell. I had to look that. It was like 1989, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's the same year the wall fell. So why the German police? We're going to get to that in a minute. So I find it very fascinating that because John was such a free spirit and because he had sent these letters home, for a while, his family thought he was fine and yeah. thought that maybe he was living among the Indians. So there right. was never any kind of an investigation. No one was ever sent there to look for John Reed. No one ever thought that there maybe was any foul play at hand. Nothing of the sort. But Sandy Reed did start to get antsy once these allegations came. Not allegations, but well, they were allegations. Let's just call it what it is. They were allegations. Right. That at that time when the German police said, we actually think that your son is deceased and we think maybe Tatun Kanara had a hand in that. Sandy basically spent years after that pursuing the story and actually went there in 1990 to confront Tatunka. This is John's sister, right? So let's talk about what, what she did in her search for him. So John goes missing in 1980 and because he had sent these letters home and everyone kind of believed it for a while. Everyone thought maybe he is living among the Indians, but this is also where the cracks started to appear in Tatunka's story because he told different people different versions of the story. So some people he said, oh, I just left John there. John ran away and, and went into the you know jungle and disappeared and he wanted to live amongst the Indians. Then I guess to maybe kind of back up that story, he said, oh, some of the Indians said that there was a large white haired man living amongst them. John was very big. He was like 6'2 or 6'3". Then there was another story that he told someone that John had been killed in a hammock. Then there was a Swiss man who Sandy actually flew to meet. He was a Swiss air pilot. And he told Sandy that Tatun Kanara had guided him into the jungle and that there was a hammock and that there were bones in it. And that Tatunka told him that this was John Reed and that there were actual bones there. Ferdinand Schmid was the Swiss air pilot. Yes. Right. So he had some connection and contact with Tatunka. Yeah. Exactly. So he had gone there. So when Sandy confronted Tatunka and asked him that question, he said, oh, I was just joking. It was pig bones. But he had also told other people that John Reed had been killed. So now there are all these different versions that, Tatu that have all originated with Tatunka of what could have possibly happened to John Reed. So Sandy starts to investigate the story. She flies to Manaus. She meets with Investigator Fish. She actually tracked him down. She was really angry at him because she was like, you're doing absolutely nothing. Then there were all these kind of interesting stories and allegations of someone saying that they were investigating the story, but then she would contact another source and they had never actually looked into it. And she started to, to kind of think, why isn't the Brazilian government doing anything? It sort of feels like I'm running into walls and I'm asking one person, then the next person is saying, oh, but I asked these people, they never got back to me. Then she would go ask those people and they said, well, he never even asked. So she was kind of getting the runaround. So eventually she ended up going with an LA Times reporter and Wolfgang Brog, who was a documentary filmmaker, and he filmed it. And in 1990, she flew into Barcelos and she met with Tatunka. And she sat with Tatunka, and this is in Wolfgang's documentary, which I have seen. And she basically says to Tatunka, you know, what happened to my brother? And the first thing Tatunka tells her is, oh, he was interested in minerals and he wanted to come out here and look for minerals. And she was like, what are you talking about? No, he was here looking for Akaim and Akakor. He was absolutely not interested in geology and looking for minerals. So she was already like, what the heck are you talking about, buddy? No. Then he told her that he had only actually spent two days with John. And at this point, Sandy is getting angry because she's like, 
either you're a liar or my brother's a liar. And I know my brother's right. not a liar. And he had written me letters saying that you guys had gone into the jungle and that there was a very long period of time that you had spent together. So at the end of this, she gets angry with Tatunka, basically says, you are a liar and I think you killed my brother and leaves. And so to this day, Sandy Reed believes that Tatunka Nara killed her brother. For somebody who's been there and done the research, I would have to say that uh, that seems pretty believable. It does. And, and when she was a part of this documentary in 2019, the one on Facebook, they actually took her back to this area where Tatunka had said he dropped off John and where then someone later said that the hammock was found and the hammock was supposedly given to a young indigenous boy. There's even a photo of him holding the hammock. No one ultimately knows what happened with those bones. One person said, I think maybe it was a Swiss air pilot said that mm -hmm. Tatunka took him and threw them in the river, but there's never any evidence, is there? There really isn't, right. except for in the next story. Hey, Richard Haddam here. You've probably heard me on Astonishing Legends, but now I have a podcast of my own, Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf, where I talk about all the books I love, the stories behind them, and how they made me who I am. The first time I read the Amityville Horror, I felt like I knew the Lutz family. George brooding and moody, Kathy paranoid and somehow guilty, the boys fighting like savages, Missy hanging out with a ghost pig named Jody. Maybe that's the part I identified with the most. Not the pig. The feeling that they were all losing their minds. That's when I learned there are basically six stages in the life of every parapsychologist. Curiosity, investigation, doubt, acceptance, James Randi, and depression. A hole opened up in the wall of his apartment, and an insect-like being, the size of a tall man, but in the form of an enormous praying mantis, stepped through. Odd, even for New York. We're leaving the highway now. Have you noticed the paved off-ramp we took has turned to a gravel path, and now a dirt road, and now nothing at all? Have you noticed how quickly the sun sets here? It's too late to turn back now. Everything's closed for the night. Why not sit down? I'll light a fire. There's a story I need to tell you. I'm inviting you all to join me on Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf. Come for the books. Stay for the, frankly, surprising amount of oversharing. This is Ken. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right. So now let's talk about Herbert Vonner, who went there in 1983 or 84 to find Akakor. He was a 22-year-old uh, mm -hmm. forestry expert from Switzerland. Yep. He had been three times to see Tatunka, and on his last trip had even bought a boat of his own, which he had left with Tatunka. And according to Tatunka, Vonner ran away into the jungle when he told him it was time for them to leave on their trip to find Akakor, which obviously they didn't get to. Tatunka has a real problem with his clients running off into the jungle. Well, I mean, yeah. really, hope, <laughs> he really, hope he's got insurance. It. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't want it to be a cliche, but one would think that if anybody could track a gringo running into the jungle, it would be Tatunka Nara. But apparently these folks are getting away from him. 
Many weeks after Vonner passed away, his traveler's checks were cashed with an obviously forged signature, as you mentioned earlier, Kinga. That was investigated by the German police, and they looked at the signature, and they said that the signatures were not consistent. There you go. So now, and this, you might have to help me with some of this, Kinga. The way that I figured it out was that in 1986, there was a Swiss tourist or a couple of Swiss tourists were on a trip in Brazil, and they relayed the story to Gilbert Castro, who was a guy that you guys talked to when you were there on your production. Yes. And that's where uh, I got some of this information from. And it turned out that uh, Gilbert reported that these guys had found, or somebody came to them and said, we found a body out in the woods or in the jungle, I should say, where there was a pair of sneakers and a skull close by. The skull appeared to have been shot in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. And when they picked it up, a Rutweiler Brennicke shotgun uh, slug fell out of the skull onto the ground, which is a German-made ammunition. There was also a jaw discovered close by. What happened with the jaw, and who were these folks that found this stuff? So this is one of those wild things that just happened to come about, and I truly believe that if it didn't play out this way, we wouldn't know that those were, in fact, Herbert Vonner's remains or that they would have somehow disappeared as well. So Herbert Vonner disappeared in like 1983, 1984, two years later, like you said. There is another group being led into the Amazon by a different guide this time. These remains are uncovered. In that group, there happened to be just randomly two Swiss dentists. And at that time, obviously, this is another country. You're not really allowed to take human remains. But for whatever reason, they said, we're going to take this jaw back to Switzerland and we're going to have it identified. And so they did. They took the jaw, they wrapped it up, and they took it back to Switzerland. They did not know that he was actually a Swiss citizen. They had no idea who this was, obviously. So this is all random coincidence. And when they had it, you know, the forensics were done on it. It was positively 100% identified as Herbert Bonner. So I personally think that had they not done that, we to this day would not know for sure that those remains were Herbert Bonner's. And yes, when he was found, there was a huge hole in the back of the skull and there was a slug from a German gun. And the only person who happened to have that gun was... Tatunkanara. Tatunkanara. And that's what the local people said. There was even a local guy that when he, he's the one who found the slug, he shook it out. He looked because I guess it, it comes in a casing and then it's the slug. So the casing was there and the slug was there. And he recognized it because he said that Tatunkanara had actually given his friend two of those slugs a year before that. So in looking for paranormal components, and I'm not fishing where there isn't a thing, but the one thing that I will say, it's very interesting that a couple of Swiss dentists happened to be the folks that showed up. They also decided to squirrel this jaw out of the country, which imagine explaining that in customs. I don't know where they hid that thing on the way back. It was a lot easier in the 1980s. Yeah, it probably was easier. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And if you're uh, famous, like legendary actor Jimmy Stewart, you can steal a Yeti finger from a monastery. Yeah, the Pengbo Shan. Yeah, that's right. Which he snuck out, uh, or he made his wife sneak out when they fled the monastery. The other thing that we talk about, and and people get irritated with us, uh, we we always joke about this because we're fans of remote viewing, believe it or not. We have a friend who's an instructor in it. And one of the things that you get, I think it was a, I can't remember if it's a Russell Targ quote, who's an expert at it, says that a the more that something is a secret, the more it shines like a beacon in the psychic space. That was Pat Price, yeah. The, oh, uh, Pat the Price, former, yes. Uh, Burbank, uh, Burbank deputy sheriff or something, right? Yeah, he was who, a police commissioner. He was a natural sheriff, at remote viewing. He, he had a lot of natural talent, but the, the concept is that the more you try and hide something, murder will out. 
there are forces that come to light. On the other hand, there are things that uh, get buried forever. And especially in this case where you have the environment as another actor, in this case, swallowing up everything, and then you have uh, a an act of suppression, I believe, of the details of this case, some things will never come out. But So it's just very fortunate that there is some evidence with this that points to something other than just natural forces. Yeah. It's the same thing with any of these, uh, you know, adventurers or explorers. You can fall in a crevasse, never be discovered again. Things just sure. disappear. But here we actually have some evidence that there was foul play. Now, whether there's no evidence of exactly who did it, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that's now starting to mount. Yes, a lot where now <laughs> coincidences happen, but they're happening a lot here. The third thing that happens is now what pushes it over. So, you know, here, yeah, you have a case where, you know, shotgun shell that has the branding on it that it is German. And yes, there are a lot, seem to be a lot of Germans visiting the area, but it's just it's out of place. You have uh, some forensic evidence that at least something is, uh, again, foul play, but it's not being investigated by anybody or that's a brick wall. It was never investigated. No. The Swiss government reached out to the Brazilian government to pursue the investigation and the Brazilian government shut it down. There were also other people on that trip when Herbert Bonner apparently decided to run off into the jungle mm -hmm. yet again. And there was a woman from New Zealand and then there was another woman. Tatunkanara right. would later say that there were some gold miners on that trip as well. There is no evidence of them. I have seen photographs of Herbert Vonner, the woman from New Zealand whose name is Madeline, and then there was a third woman as well. And that woman, Madeline, apparently heard a gunshot when she was waiting at the boat. And then Tatum Kanara said, Herbert Vonner's not coming back. We're leaving. And Tatunkanara's story is that when Herbert Vonner ran off into the woods, Tatunka fired three times his shotgun three times into the air to signal that he was leaving. But she only ever heard one shot. Okay. It seems that there is more protection being afforded than somebody just helping out the military on a, one occasion. Yeah. There's something else going on here, which is garnering this kind of uh, obfuscation and, and protection here by Brazilian authorities and not just the military is that there's different departments. It just seems like a lot where you just wouldn't say like, okay, yeah, you know what, uh, as German rule provides, all of their citizens are subject to German rule of law, no matter where they are on the planet. And uh, you have a U.S. Uh, consulate saying uh, politely to the Brazilian government, like, hey, just let the Germans in, let them investigate. Like, no, 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 we got this. We don't need any more other outsiders. We're investigating when clearly they're not. Something's amiss here. What do you think is happening besides this? Or is there, is it just a lack of interest, a little bit of a favoritism and just uh, incompetence? It sure seems like a lot of favoritism for one guy. Like, how is this one guy so valuable? Because we do know that the German government tried to get involved repeatedly. They said he is a German citizen, and we'll get into why they knew that later. But they do believe that Tatum Kanara had something to do with, with these situations. And the Brazilian government said, nope, sorry, we're working on it. Then the Swiss government came in and said, hey, listen, 
we know that a Swiss citizen died in Brazil. We want to investigate the story. And the Brazilian government said, sorry, nope, we're working on it. Then we know that in John Reed's case, the FBI eventually got involved and they wanted to come in and take a look at this John Reed case once they knew that he was probably missing forever and not just out there living in the jungle happily because he found something interesting. And the Brazilian government once again said, nope, sorry. And then we have Sandy Reed's experiences where she kept talking to people where she felt like she was talking in circles. And one person would say, sorry, you know, I just have no one else to help me with this case. And the next person said, oh, well, he never even asked us. That's so weird. And things would disappear. So there is something seriously sinister going on in terms of someone shutting down the investigation. And there was no Brazilian investigation. Tatunkanara was actually never like, he was questioned by the police, but it was like, hey, can you just give us some statements on this? Like there was never like any serious inter interrogation. There was never investigation. We don't even know what happened to the rest of Herbert Vonner's remains. Where are they now? No one ever went and looked for John Reed. And they're not the only ones. Well, unless it's a UFO as in the Varginha uh, UFO case where the US government then comes in and uh, gives them a strong arm. There seems to be cooperation there, but here on this lower level case, there's just some pleasantries exchanged diplomat diplomatically. And then uh, that's as far as we're gonna go because we don't wanna, as far as the US POV is or these other uh, Western governments, well, we'll make an inquiry, but we're really not gonna come barging in because then you it starts causing problems. So that's where it gets left. And as a as a private citizen, Sandy Reid has uh, has other options that uh, governments don't in, in a certain ways that she can come in. But it's also very dangerous for her. And I think she was putting off the trip maybe because of that fear, and uh, she was told not to. And eventually, though, what I like about the story, and again, it's very uh, heartbreaking in a lot of ways, is that her frustration and anger and uh, just wanting closure on this and knowledge, that presses her to just make a trip here against all advisement and risk her own life in confronting Tatunka. And that's an intimidating thing to do. Barcelos is intimidating. And yeah. when you know that Tatunka is there, it's a small town in the middle of nowhere. After we were there and we did the interview with Tatunka, we stayed in this hotel and I actually took a chair and put it up against my door at night because I thought everyone here knows everyone else. Like if he yeah. didn't like the experience he had with us, and then later I found out that the rest of our crew did the same thing. You do feel very exposed <laughs> yeah. in that town. Mm. I mean, I've sensed that from watching your episode while you were there. The nervousness that you and JJ seemed to have mm -hmm. seemed very pronounced and real. It was about very real. It. And I was thinking, I wouldn't do this. Like, I, I don't – it's amazing to me that you guys went there because – yeah, it's a it's scary thing. So uh, my hat's off to you. Well, thanks. Let's talk about uh, our one uh, remaining victim that we're at least going to cover here. You know, and these are of the ones that we know of. Christine Hauser, who went to the region in 1986 and 87. She was a 45-year-old yoga instructor who visited Tatunka at least twice in those years. And it's possible that the two of them had some kind of relationship. And she also apparently thought that she was the reincarnation of Tatunka's wife. Yep. Would that be his wife in Akakor? We're not really sure. Yeah. We're not sure which one. I would imagine, yes, in Akakor, because in the letters that she wrote home to friends and family, she was enamored with Tatunka. She did come visit him twice, which is another common thread between all of these people. 
they kept coming back to visit Tatunka. They were determined right. to find Akakor. So she right. was a German-born Swedish citizen. She lived in Sweden. She was very much in a free spirit. You know, there are pictures of her swinging topless in the jungle. So yes. I, I, I do believe that she actually had some kind of a relationship with Tatunka. She came to visit him several times. The second time, she said she had written a letter to her friend back home and said, Tatunka said, I should come right away. We're going to have about two months together. Okay. So he's enticing her to come back. Yes. She it returns. Seems so. This is 1987. She comes back. She's got a couple thousand dollars with her, mm-hmm. and she and Tatunka hike into the jungle looking for Akakor. Yes. There, there was a witness that you interviewed who said what about this? We interviewed someone who said that they saw Tatunka going upriver with a woman that matched her description and coming back down without her. That is not the story Tatunka tells, and that is not the story that he told me. Tatunka had said that they got into an argument of some kind and that he kicked her off his boat, right? And after this argument, he put her on another boat back to Manaus. That's his story, which she never arrived to. Well, it's very difficult to keep track because Tatunka's stories keep changing. So we heard the eyewitness story that he had taken Christine up the river and then he came back alone. There was one story that Tatunka had originally said, and he this is the one that I believe was in the signed police report, that he said that they got in a fight and he threw her, he put her in a boat and sent her back down to Barcelos in the jungle. Then there was another version where he just threw her out of the boat in the jungle, which that's a death sentence. I'm sorry. Like yeah, you throw mm, someone out yeah. into the jungle, that is a death sentence. Then there was yeah. a third story that he said that in Manaus, not even Barcelos, he threw her out of the boat there and said, no, I don't want you coming with me. And that she stayed there and that there were witnesses who saw her in Manaus after that. He didn't name any of those witnesses and none of those witnesses ever came forward. He told JJ and I, when I was there interviewing them, he said, oh, when she was only here with me once, when she came back, she wasn't even with me. I don't know what she did or who she went with. So his stories are all over the place. And I even said to him in the interview, you see me say to him, well, hold on a second. This is a police report that you signed that says X, Y, and Z happened. And you're telling me something completely different. And he doesn't have an answer for that. He changes the subject. Pretty fishy. I'd say it's pretty darn fishy. The long and short of it is that after Christine went out with him, she was never seen again and hasn't to this day, no trace of her has been found anywhere. Never. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Tatunka himself. Who is Tatunka? How did he get into this picture? In the 1960s, he shows up in Accra, spelled like Acre, but that's how you said to say it, Kinga, so I'm saying it that way, Accra. Far western Brazil on the border between Brazil and Peru, or it shares a border with that. He was wearing a loincloth and a feather and had a bow with him and had, as we said, said he was the chief of the Uga Mangalala and that he lived in a city that was now completely underground, Akakor. This is where he shows up, but this is part of Tatunka's origin story. And even yes. though he dictated this entire creation myth about the people of Akakor, his people, the Ugamangalala, and their intertwining backstory and history and conflicts and cities and trading cities that they dealt with and how uh, Viracocha was basically an outcast from their society – And all of these things that he's saying that oddly tracked very well with the historical footprint of a lot of indigenous cultures, but Mm -hmm. also had details that were hard to corroborate. But what is the reality here? The reality here is that we think Tatunka is a German citizen. We know that, actually. That's been confirmed at this point by the German government and by multiple experts. So there are basically two sides. There's kind of like 
before Tatunka and after Tatunka. So after Tatunka starts about 1968-ish when he first emerged from the jungle and said, I'm Tatunka Nara. That's when Carl Brueger met him. That's when all of this started. The Chronicles of Akakor, everyone came to see him and people started disappearing. Prior to that, there are photographs of a young man who was born in Bavaria. And these are photographs of him as a child and then him with his wife. And this is a man named Gunter Hauk. And these photographs have been identified as an expert who looked at photographs of Tatunka now and Tatunka in those photos or Gunter Hawk in those photos and said, this is 100% the same man. And honestly, I'll tell you, I've seen the photos. You probably have too. It doesn't take yes. an expert. He has very yeah. characteristic jaw. He has a very yes. characteristic hairline with like multiple widow's peaks. His features are very distinguished. It is the same individual. And if you don't believe me, then there is a German expert that said the exact same thing. So Tatunka Nara was apparently born in Akakor in 1941. Gunter Hawk was born in Bavaria in 1938. He grew up there. He then was married and had at least two children. And in about 1966, that marriage was dissolved and he got on a ship and sailed across to South America. And he got off that ship. He basically abandoned. He was a sailor and he was arrested. And when he was arrested, he was taken into custody and there was a psychiatrist that looked at him and diagnosed him with schizophrenia. He was then sent back to Germany, at which point he got on another boat and around 1968 as a sailor, this time he got off the boat and disappeared into the jungle and voila, Tatunka Nara was born. That story is uh, nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah, it's uh, nuts because that's already crazy. And then after this, we get Akakor and Carl Brueger's book and all of the other stuff that unfolded downstream of this. Yeah. So there was a, a gentleman who wrote a book named Rudiger Neberg or Nieberg, and he and filmmaker Wolfgang Brog, who was in the episode that you guys did, had made a film about Tatunka Nara, yeah. which in, in itself is fascinating. That's the one we were talking about earlier that we couldn't find. But I wanted to read this section from um, a book that Neberg published in 1991 called The Self-Made Chief. In it, he revealed that Tatunka Nara's real name is Hansi Richard Gunther Hauk, mm-hmm. and that he was born in Grub am Forst, probably not saying that right, a town near Coburg in Bavaria and not on the Rio Negro. In 1941, according to Neberg, Hauk, who had read a lot of Tarzan books as a young boy, abandoned his wife and children in 1966, took a job on board the freighter Dorothy Oldendorf, and eventually disappeared in Brazil. Former friends said that as a child, Hauk once claimed to have witnessed the landing of extraterrestrial beings. Well, there you go. Okay, so in addition to these three folks that we've talked about, are there other folks that have uh, mysteriously gone missing while in Tatunka's company or looking for Akakor? Yes and no. So there were some fairly official reports that it was being looked into that there were some other, I believe, either Swiss or from New Zealand citizens who had also gone missing. That is all I know of that. I have read that in two different locations. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I have never seen it mentioned in any interview, in any other documentary. We certainly didn't hear anything about it. I I can't speak to that. I would be hard-pressed to think that there wouldn't be more information out there about these people who also disappeared, considering how much information there is out about John, about Herbert, and about Christine. 
It seems like if for nothing else, because certainly there must, there's people, especially of that adventurous spirit that might be wandering all over the world, you know, not all who wander are lost or whatever, that kind of thing. And they might not be telling people where they're going. They're just bouncing around. They're individuals. And you could see somebody like that crossing paths. And if they disappeared, nobody might know. And back home or wherever they're from or who their family are, maybe their family lost track of them a long time ago, or they don't really have a family. Conversely, though, one of the things that seems really prominent with the case of these three folks is all of the local witnesses, which is something we always come back to in the stuff that we cover. You've got to listen to the people who saw the thing happen. And it seems like if there were other folks, there would also be rumors in the town that were more specific about, well, there was another. It's not these three you're talking about. There was somebody else in 1988 or this year or a different year. And we don't have that information as 100%. of right now. I, I completely agree with you that I think most likely what this was, and again, we're speculating now because we have no information about this at all, other than what I just told you, is that these were people who may have gone out into the jungle with Tatunka and also at some point in their lives disappeared. And so there was that connection. That's not to right. say that they disappeared in the jungle with Tatunka. We don't know that for sure, but there is no other information about them. So that's that's really all we can say about that. Hi, I'm Kirby, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. So one of the greatest things about having you on for this series is the fact that you actually talked to this man. And that's something that we've already alluded to. And then I wanted to go to the police report. But there's a part of me that wants to share the police report first. So I'm going to read excerpts. But the bulk of this police report, again, keep in mind, this was translated from German to English. So it might not be perfect uh, in terms of reading. And uh, I want to thank you, uh, Kinga, for providing this to us. Of course. That was that was from our production team. This investigation is directed against Hansi Richard Gunther Hauk, born on 5-10-1941 in Grub am Forst near Coburg. The accused Hauk, in the following H, is called Tatunka Nara, supposedly born on 6-10-1938 as the son of an Indian and a German-born nun, and lives in Barcelos in the Amazonas region of Brazil. As far as Hauk is concerned with regard to these accusations of the German criminal authority, the public prosecutor's office in Hamburg has become responsible. Hauk is subject to German criminal powers as long as he is still a German, according to the file, even if he also has a Brazilian passport. At the same time, and is married to an inter-Brazilian and since 1968 has lived in Brazil. Undoubtedly, Hauk is subject to Brazilian law because of the alleged acts. In Brazil, prosecutorial investigation is still pending against Hauk in regard to these allegations, but which, as far as is known, has not led to any charges. Hauk denies all charges. He is aware of the allegations made against him in the present proceedings. He has made several written submissions, including on the state of the proceedings, and has participated in interrogations carried out by the Brazilian authorities, among other things, also on local requests for mutual legal assistance was carried out and commented on the allegations in detail. In carrying out the legal aid procedure, certain friction has arisen between the Brazilian authorities and the BKA as the investigating domestic police station. Again, that's the German police force, which relates in particular to the requested participation of German police officers in the interrogations to be conducted in Brazil. 
As a result, a joint investigation was not made, which would have been particularly useful as Hauk, in his self-constructed role as Tatunka Nara, the self-proclaimed chief of an Indian tribe in the jungle cities Akahim or Akakor, combined with the denial that he is Gunther Hauk forms an integral part of his dispute. Although there is some evidence that the Brazilian authorities did not rigorously investigate, it must always be considered that it is in the nature of this case that evidence on the ground is difficult to provide. The Tatunkanara legend was associated from the outset with the disappearance of people in the Amazon region. It is not to be ruled out that Hauk put the legend into the world in order to make himself interesting as a jungle guide in order to rob unsuspecting tourists on occasion. Examples that speak to this thesis include that after the disappearance of the murder victim Vonner in Brazil, his traveler's checks were redeemed. The legend staged by Hauk was positively taken up by the naturalist Jacques Cousteau and by the author Eric von Daniken and later repeatedly referred by the media. If Hauk committed the crimes he was charged with but then couldn't effectively free himself from suspicion, it would have been natural for him to eliminate the evidence and possibly any witnesses that the authorities would have been able to interact with. It must also be remembered that Reed, Vonner, and Hauser were adventurous young people, possibly also dropouts, in quotes, who at the same time might have been gullible. Karl Brueger has written books about the Tatunkanara legend. The letters from the murder victims show that the letter writers had great confidence in Hauk. In any case, the claims made by Hauk in Reed, Vonner, and Hauser's cases proved that these persons continued to spend some time after their separation from him in the Amazon or neighboring countries, and if they were undoubtedly killed, were killed by unknown persons. Brazilian law enforcement officials are also likely to face problems of certain refutation. An extradition would also be doomed to failure because Hauk is married in Brazil and has children. This is unlikely to change as he has Brazilian nationality. The Brazilian authorities who have been confronted about his identity have so far made no attempt, for example, to blame Hauk. So this uh, police report, you know, it's a public record. It's a police report there. We're just reading what it says. This makes Tatunka Nara or Hauk out to be possibly a fairly dangerous in- individual. When you went there for your show, Lost in the Wild, you and your co-host JJ and your production company tracked Tatunka Nara down and made an effort to not only find, but to talk to him and to interview him. We did. How did that process go? First of all, how did you find him and how did you manage to set up the interview and what was talking to him like and what did he say? So we started in Manaus where we spoke to Wolfgang Brog, who is a German filmmaker who had been living in Brazil for a very long time. Now we do have to, with all integrity, give a disclaimer here. This is something Scott brought to my attention as we were going back into the research for the show this happened a long time after I was there in 2019, but apparently there are some really ugly allegations made against Wolfgang now of a sexual nature. This is being pending investigation. It is just really ugly. So if anyone Googles his name and finds this, we knew nothing about this when we were there in 2019. I think this just came to light in the last year or so. So when we were there and we met with Wolfgang Brog. He was a filmmaker who basically went out with Tatunka in 1972, met him, chartered a boat with, is it Newberg? Newberg, yes. N-E-H-B-E-R-G, I'm not sure. So the two of them went out on an expedition with Tatunka, and then he got super fascinated about this, forgot about it. A year later, the German federal police contacts Wolfgang and says, hey, what do you know about this Tatunka Nara guy? This was in 1988. 
what do you know about this guy? We have some thoughts about him. We don't think he's a really good guy. So Wolfgang decides to make a documentary about Tatunka. And he does it in a very kind of sly way. He doesn't want to just go to Tunka and say, hey, the German federal police think you're a murderer. What do you think about that? I'm going to do a documentary. He brings in a couple of women from Germany and says, I'm going to do a documentary about them going off into the jungle and their first experience in the Amazon. Tatunka, will you be their guide? And do you mind if we film this? So Wolfgang does this whole documentary about these women going in there and Tatunka starts to tell them on camera about how he is the son of Akakor and tells them all these stories. He also talks about some of the explorers who disappeared and it's just like, gosh, it's so strange that John Reed guy, he just ran off into the woods. But then Wolfgang gets basically an anonymous memo from someone saying that Tatunka has connections at the highest level of like the military. It's almost like kind of the secret service of Brazil. And Wolfgang actually says to us, he says, and at that point I was like, I don't want to deal with this anymore because this is getting sketchy and this is getting dangerous. And this ultimately is what a lot of us do believe because it doesn't make any sense. Once again, we said it, we'll say it again, why the Brazilian government has not dug into any of these cases, why they have prevented the Americans, the Swiss, and the German authorities from coming in and investigating these cases. It doesn't make any sense. Like all signs do actually point to Tatunka. If nothing else, if you're the last person to be seen with someone, then really it needs to be investigated deeper. And in most of these cases, it never was. So from there, we flew to Barcelos. We chartered a plane. We flew into Barcelos. Our producers found Tatunka, and he wouldn't do an interview with us unless we paid him. So we did end up paying him. I don't know how much, but he's that guy. And we wanted to get him on camera. So we sit down with him. And before that, JJ and I kind of had a little conference between us. And I was like, look, I'm going to act really stupid. Like I have no idea what's going on because I just don't want him to think that we're digging into this. We also knew that other people had been asking about this, that there had been another documentary film crew and he was probably on edge, probably didn't want to talk about it. I also double mic'd myself Because I thought at the end of this interview, if there's a moment where I can take off my microphone and maybe he'll say something then, I don't know. That's clever. Little little microphone (laughs) theater. A little mic. Yeah, we did that. Wow, what a great trick. (laughs) We also told our camera guys, we said, look, no matter what happens, I think we actually even had to put tape on the red light of a camera that shows that it's blinking. No matter what happens, keep the camera rolling. We want to see what happens. We don't know how this is going to end because I think from what I remember, it was his son who set up the interview and he said he didn't want to talk about like you know, the murder allegations. And we were like, well, we're going to talk about the murder allegations. So we didn't know how this was going to go. Again, to paint the picture, we're in Barcelos, a tiny town. There's no way out. Our plane left. It wasn't coming back until the next day. So we are stuck there no matter what. We were there for three days because this we went up the Amazon as well. So we get in, you know, he says, hello. We sit down together. We start talking to him. The first thing in the interview was a very, quite a long interview. It was maybe about an hour altogether. We have a translator there, and what you see on air is just a snippet of it. But we start talking about the Chronicles of Akakor, and he's like, oh, most of that book is just crap anyway. This is ridiculous. And then it is in the show where I say to him, so people would come here and you would take them to go find Akakor. And he, to my face, says, oh, I never took anyone to go find Akakor. Like, people just wanted to come explore the jungle, but no one ever came to see Akakor. And I'm like, JJ and I are kind of looking at each other going, we actually know that's not true because we have letters from people. We talk to people's families. We know that's not true. 
So we kind of kept going. We kept going. We're asking him questions. At one point, we get to Christine Hauser, and I have a police report that basically says this is what happened. And I said, Tatunka, this is your signature right here. And, and I'm acting very stupid. I'm like, but I just don't understand. Why is there a police report here that you signed that says you guys got in a fight and you threw her off a boat? You signed that, but you're telling me that she actually never went back out with you. Gosh, that is so weird. I just really, two plus two equals five here. How strange is that? And he would kind of talk in circles and go off on tangents and never really actually answer the questions. And then there's a great scene, which I like high five JJ for later, because we get to the the story of Herbert Bonner and we're like, hey, so this is really odd. It kind of seems like he was shot in the head and the slug that was found in there was from a gun. And everyone said, you were the only guy who had that gun. And at this point, his son comes out and is like, oh, the interview's over. And JJ's like, okay, but can you just tell me about the gun? Like, did you or did you not have the exact gun that killed Herbert Bonner? And Tatunka just says something else and JJ goes, so no comment on the gun, huh? No comment on the gun. (laughs) And because he just, he wouldn't answer these very, very obvious questions, which also made me think if he was ever actually interrogated by police, why weren't these questions asked? And if they were, I haven't seen them in any kind of a report. No one said, Tatunka explained that he was the only guy in Barcelos who had this gun, but you know, he happened to be in Manaus that day. He has nothing like that to aid his story. None of that was ever properly investigated. And that to this day drives me absolutely crazy. There's also a story that his German wife, and Wolfgang told us this, that Gunter Hauk, Tatunka Nara's German wife, was brought to Brazil to identify him. And she identified him as her husband, Gunter Hauk. And he basically said, oh, she's a crazy woman. He either has an excuse for everything or he just flat out denies it. Or he starts talking in circles, never answers the questions. So in the end of our interview with Tatunka, how it basically ended was his son came in and was like, the interview's over, the interview's over. I told you, you know, we're not talking about the murders. And we got up and we left. And you actually see the ending of that because our cameras did keep rolling. Do you know if he's still alive? Have you heard anything about him since all of this happened? That was 2019. He was probably about 85 years old then. I don't know what the latest on him is. I mean, it's, you know, 2024 right now. Right. There's a part of me that really just wants to go get some DNA. You know, I I wanted, and I said this to our crew, I was like, you guys, what if we just sat down a cup? Listen, I've seen this on like on NCIS (laughs) and he'll drink from the cup and we'll identify him as Gonter Hauk. We'll, we'll do DNA tests with his kids. And our team was like, you know, we work with Travel Channel. We don't have the money for that, right? (laughs) (laughs) So when you were talking to him, did you guys ever feel a little nervous? Or I guess he's so much older, maybe not. I mean, was there any fight or flight there? Or was more just like, this is just an old guy trying to cover his butt? So this is my personal opinion, having sat across from Tatunka. We know that in 1968, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I kind of did a deep dive on that because I am truly fascinated by several pieces here. The details of his story about Akakor are so fantastic and extraordinary. They are truly like any novel writer would only wish to have such an imagination. I'm also very impressed that he, as a German citizen, you know, a regular white guy from Germany did end up in the Brazilian jungle and did manage to survive and did manage to have some kind of a life living off of the land there. So he learned a significant amount of skills there. Wolfgang said to us when we were in the interview with him, I said, do you think he's crazy? And Wolfgang says, no, I don't think he's crazy. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think he knows exactly the stories that he's weaving. 
If I had to speculate, and this is speculation, I do think that Tatum Kanara, Gunter Hawk, does have some kind of a mental condition, be it schizophrenia, whatever it is, delusions of grandeur, where he actually believes these things. I do think that he believes the stories that he's selling. Do I think that he actually killed these people? I can't come out right and say, yes, I think he's an absolute murderer, but all signs point in that direction. And I can't put it in my words, but if you put it in Wolfgang Brog's or in Sandy Reed's words, they absolutely think that he is responsible for the deaths of John Reed, Christine Hauser, and Herbert Bonner. I was not scared sitting across from him. I was more nervous about his son because his son is young. We don't know what kind of connections mm-hmm. he has there. I mean, I doubt he's going to go to like extensive to take out an entire film crew, but we did get nervous in our hotels that night because we realized that everyone knows each other in this town. I think at this point in his life, he's like, you know what? They haven't caught me yet. So we're really, what's a film crew going to do? I just don't think he cares anymore. But if I had to go on to speculate why and the motive of all this, let's just say that he is guilty of these murders. This is a man that received a certain amount of fame from the Chronicles of Akakor. People were coming because now they believed his story. He might have very well been like, oh crap, wow, people really bought this story? Holy moly. But now they're coming and they're paying me thousands of dollars to take them. We know from Wolfgang and from Newberg that he repeatedly would take people up there and then something would always happen. There would be signs he would read in the leaves that would say, oh, we can't go on, that that I see my people have written here that we can't go. Or the weather would turn, something would always come up that people could Rapids capsized the canoe like they did with with Brueger. Something always happened that no one could go any further. And the reality is that... If there is not an Akakor and Tatuka had made all this up and he knew there wasn't an Akakor, he knew that he couldn't take people to this exact area because he was telling them he knew exactly where it was. So at some point, someone's going to figure it out. So he would create these scenarios like in Wolfgang's case, in Carl Brueger's case, in Newberg's case, where something had to happen that they couldn't go any further. But then you had these three people, John Herbert and Christine, who all showed up repeatedly and they wouldn't stop. They were determined. And if I had a guess, if there was a motive there, it was because Tatunka was like, these people are never going to stop. They're going to be a complete nuisance to me. And they're either going to drive me crazy or they're going to reveal that there's actually nothing here. and They're going to go tell everyone about it. So what do you do? So I want to read an excerpt from this uh, Spiegel article. This was published on July 11th, 2014. And I just want to read this little uh, section, and the article is written by Alexander Smolchik. Does Tatunka know this Gunther Hauk? Not personally, he says. He traveled to Germany once, he adds, and they addressed him as Gunther Hauk when he was there. There was also a woman, and to avoid trouble, he went to bed with her. Of course. But all of that was completely wrong, he says. I am Tatunka, period. Gunther Hauk is merely a skin that was shed long ago. As if to prove his point, Tatunka pulls out a Brazilian ID card, which identifies him as an Indian and contains a stamp from the Brazil agency in charge of Indian affairs. He must have been very convincing as an Indian. So that's a very interesting bit, too, that leans into the story that the Brazilian government had a hand in some of this, or the military. Tatunka Nara has a Brazilian passport, and he has a Brazilian birth certificate, And on it, basically, it says that he is the son of this chieftain and this nurse. So whatever the story that he spun is and whoever he spun it to, 
they bought it enough that they gave him official Brazilian documentation. I'm going to spoil something here that's unrelated to our specific episode tonight. And I, and Kinga, you have no way of knowing this, but I always give Forrest a hard time about spoiling movies and things like that. And this one's not even that old. It's only a couple of years old. It's a documentary called Sasquatch. <laughs> it was a series about a rumored Sasquatch in California, Northern California specifically. And the filmmakers went out to try to get to the bottom of this story. And what they uncovered was a large area of marijuana farming and that the likelihood for the person who was apparently killed by a Sasquatch, it was in fact a heavy who worked for the dealers who was called Sasquatch, a human being, who was a guard. And so that's the thing where this myth came up around and wound up covering a crime. And also it's the perfect mythology to keep people away from this illegal operation. Here, it's almost this opposite thing where the mythology came up first and then the crime came after. And it's an interesting reversal, but I think sometimes we do come across stories that maybe the story is a cover for something that went wrong. It's like, I drove my train away from a water tower while the spout was still down, and instead of saying that I did that, I'm going to say a UFO hit the train (laughs) or that kind of thing. And there is a story like that, but that one is mostly just a story that I think on cursory research was based on a photograph. Yeah, blame (laughs) it on the UFO. No, you won't believe what happened. Why is your police car upside down? There was a UFO. I was telling you, it came out and I was trying to look at it and I flipped the police car. Not I was texting my girlfriend and I flipped the car. So I think sometimes that happens. But in this case, the mythology is what led to the criminal activity. So uh, one person that we've lost in the conversation here is Carl Brueger, uh, uh, the author who yes. wrote Chronicle of Akakor, who put this entire story on the map. Why don't we find him? Why don't we interview him? Why can't we talk to him about this story and his take now when all the hindsight and with the missing persons about what he thinks happened with Akakor and Tatunkanara? Well, that is a great question, Scott. And like we said early on, this whole story is like an infomercial because just when you think you're done with the crazy, but wait, there's more. So I would love to speak to Carl Brueger about the Chronicles of Akakor because he was a very respected journalist at the time. And his belief in this is, I think, what pushed it forward. Unfortunately, in 1984, while walking on Ipanema Beach in Rio de Janeiro, Carl Brueger and his friend were approached by a lone gunman and Carl was shot in the chest in an apparent robbery which didn't steal anything. He died in the taxi on the way to the hospital. And the Brazilian government chalked it up to a botched robbery, even though nothing was ever stolen. Now, what is interesting about that is that he was about to embark on another expedition to Akaim, and that there was a reported dispute between him and Tatunkanara about royalties for the book, The Chronicles of Akakor. What is even more interesting about this story is that the German federal police believe that Tatunkanara is involved in the death of Karl Ruger. So there you have it, folks. The crazy just keeps on rolling. Well, that brings us to the point in the show where Forrest and I usually start trying to make some conclusions. Most of the time, this is where we're trying to figure out if the explanation of an astonishing legend is fringe or very mundane. Where does the needle fall? Are we involving any cryptids here, UFOs, time slips, other dimensions? In this case, I think what we're trying to figure out is 
is Tatunkanara the chieftain's son, last person, last, I, I guess, uh, chieftain of the Uga Mangalala people of Akakor? Is Akakor real or is he not? Forrest, I want to start with you here. Mm. What, it, what, what is your opinion <laughs> of this scenario? Well, what's interesting here is if somebody was, and again, you probably have to talk to a psychiatrist, and somebody apparently did when he was jailed for three months uh, back in Germany, again, for failing to provide uh, spousal and child support. As Kinga said, he was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. Does that mean, though, that he's not totally aware of his actions? Or does it matter? Is he mentally ill? Well, I think, as it happens with a lot of stories we cover, Nothing is mutually exclusive. You can't say, well, there you go. You know, he he's mentally ill, so all these other things happened. And, or I guess the differentiation is between that and being a furtive or purposeful con man. Is he or was he assuming this identity for the purpose of just monetary gain, fleeing his past situation here? Yes, he's got some condition and he fled Germany well, now twice, and the second time was more successful, is that nobody came to, to grab him. And it just happens that this book is written, all these other things happen, and, and he said, like, hey, you know what? This is not too shabby. I mean, I'll ask Kinga, that house that appears in the episode, is that a very large house, or does it seem fairly well-to-do for the area? By which standards are we judging here well, in Los I Angeles? <laughs> no, it would still well, it would no. probably cost two million dollars in Los Angeles, but it would sure. be considered a teardown. But no. <laughs> uh, for Barcelos, he does live in a nice yeah. Riverside house. He also had built a hotel. He has boats. His son has a business there. Right. Yeah, I would say in Barcelos, he's well to do. Yeah, he's doing okay, as it was described in a Los Angeles Times article. Again, that was the one who's pointing out uh, that piece of information there. That source is pointing out a lot of the the more spurious aspects of Tatunka's story that we can only speculate on. And again, we're not, we're not trying to uh, uh, disparage anybody legally, of course, but things are coming to light here, which are pretty obvious to us. And when you add these facts up, it's like, well, um, he did okay for a guy that's kind of on the run with a severe, if you want to say a severe mental illness that just falls into a lot of fortune and favor. I think he does know what the angle is going here how the cards have played out for him, and he's playing it to the fullest, knowing that he can get away with it, and has, and and is doing okay by it. And it just happens to be, like I said, I don't think he came here to set up a uh, false tour guide business. I think for whatever else he's, uh, how he's made his money, here are some chickens that came into my coop. And uh, as mm -hmm. the fox here, uh, I could just take advantage of this. No one's going to be the wiser, and it's it's just some extra cash and I, I think there's a lot of things that, that are at play here that just fell in his favor. And again, helping, uh, I mean, if the story is true that he helped out the victims of the helicopter crash with the military, and that's all that that is, is he, he did them a solid, so now they're going to protect him for the rest of his life. I, that seems a little thin. There's just a lot more to unpack here, I think, that we don't know about, mm -hmm. which would be even weirder and more crazy of a story. And as all aspects of this are, but there is still some mystery to this. I think, uh, again, you can say, well, three people went in, they didn't come out with him. He was the last person that saw them. If this were a dateline or a, a four to eight hours, this would be a pretty case closed situation here, but, but it's not. I think there are a lot of loose ends with this story still, and all the people that were never reported, that's also a possibility, or locals 
that just disappeared and nobody ever went to look for him that may have crossed him. And uh, who knows what happened, but they left him alone. So I think there's a combination of factors, I guess, is my, my assessment here is that he may or may not believe his story. But as we know, a lot of people who assume these identities, uh, Scott and I believe, when they study their stories, no matter how outrageous they are, I think it's part of human nature that you come to believe your own story or aspects mm-hmm. of it, or you've forgotten. Uh, certainly at this point, into his late 70s and 80s, you may start to get really fuzzy and foggy about what's real and what's not. As was evidenced by his son in the interview on the episode that you're in, he's just tired of all this. It's like, okay, people are accusing my dad, and I still love my dad. It's like, I don't want this. uh, We just want to be done with this. And whatever that legend is for people who aren't Tatunka around him, it's just like, well, I mean, I don't know how much, as you said earlier, I don't know how much of my dad's story is, is real or not. It doesn't matter at this point. I just want to kind of forget this and we want to move on. Whereas uh, granting an interview at all, I think Tatunka is still enjoying a little bit of this fame and limelight and being a prince of a lost fabled city and still kind of uh, dining out on that, as Scott's relatives would say. Yeah, yeah, that's the Hollywood thing. But I'm going to dine out on that a long time. But but didn't you ask Kinga, you asked if people were still living there and he said, yes. Yes. People are living in Akakor right now today. So I asked him if people were still living in Akakor, if Akakor exists. He said, yes. And I said, are you going to go back to Akakor? And I even said, I don't know if this made it into the show or not. I don't remember. But I said, hey, well, your son technically is going to be the heir to Akakor. Is he going to go yes. back? And Tatunka said, no, you know, I can never go back now, now that I've been living here for so long. Like, I'm, I know. That was longer. in the show. Okay. So yeah, he did say yeah. he can no longer go back, but he continues to uphold the story that Akakor does exist and there are people living there. I'll just say, yeah, as far as any kind of uh, thread on this weird sweater that you could pull that would lead to something that's uh, otherworldly, uh, paranormal, in that there, there's no evidence of that either. There's no ruins. There's no strange <laughs> rock paintings, carvings. There's really nothing to go on, no matter how thin, as you do with other cultures. I mean, if you look at the, just in the American Southwest, all the, the strange things, there'll be a, a perfectly carved square or rectangular, what looks like a portal or entrance into the side of a, a cliff or rock face. And you say, well, people go missing around here. And we usually think it's it's something to do with this carving here. It may have been a processional thing, or you, you have uh, paintings to go off of that sparks the legend even further and causes some people to wonder and continue to visit it, you don't really have that here or it's yet to be discovered. So it all just kind of fades into the jungle at this point. And there's nothing, there's not even any relics that Tatunka himself can point to. Like, well, here's some things I, you know, here's some jewelry I brought back from our people or some fine metalwork. There's really nothing to go on because uh, that's just too hard. And so it also makes this story even more amazing to me in that then you really have nothing but his word out of all of this and just the tragedy that's happened. One and the person's word too. There's nobody else that's like, oh yeah, I've been to Akakor. There's nobody. There's no one else. Like, oh, my family came from right. Akakor. 
So all these people are still living there, but there's no descendant. No descendants have been like, I hate Akakor. I want to go to Manaus <laughs> or, and go to a nightclub. Well, here's the, here's the there's nobody that did that. Or even the legends right? of uh, the indigenous peoples. It's like, yes, it did exist once. You know, our elders believe this and our ancestors believe that. And now there's no real proof of it now. It's it's all lost and, you know, unknown to our, our current peoples. Uh, but we do believe that it did exist or this legend is true in some aspects. You don't even have that. Nope. Maybe these folks have disappeared because they were getting too close to the actual location of the real city of Akakor. No, I'm not going to go there. with that. No one's there. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I am either. I would I don't say think if I that am. were the case, then even the indigenous peoples there would say like, no, there's something to it. There's at least, you know, us young folks here in our generations, we may not believe all of the stories of our ancestors, but we also don't go poking around there. That's something you see with Native Americans in North America and that- yeah. Yeah, there are you know, skinwalker. We just don't talk about that because we know people we trust that have run into something weird and we just leave it alone. We suggest you do as well. You know, there are sacred places that you don't go poking around in because they still believe that they hold some power and out of respect or fear or whatever it is, you leave it alone. Here you have, talk about in some aspect, cultural appropriation. You have somebody coming from the outside, hanging a shingle, setting up shop, and is allowed to do so, but totally of his own creation and accessibility. And this is Tatunka's thing. And he's been able to do his thing all these decades. That alone is just weird and kind of amazing. You nailed it for us. The oral history of Akakor and Akaim originates from one person. There is yeah. literally nobody else out there talking about Akakor or Akaim. No one has been, no one has seen, no one has any artifacts. None of the, the local indigenous people, many of whom it's have been contacted. the best lost city best in the world. kept secret <laughs> ever. Yeah. And you made a great point. So there are supposedly still all these hundreds of thousands or even millions of people living there. And not right. one person has been like, you know what? I want something else for my life. I'm leaving. Yeah. No one <laughs> yeah. else has come out well, of there. Well, again, so I, this doesn't, uh, for me, diminish this type of story just takes it in a different direction and makes it a totally intriguing story of another kind. Sure. I can't remember the name of, uh, maybe this had something to do with El Dorado. I think it is connected and talked about what you do talk about lost cities of, of gold, especially is the, uh, the legend, which is an indigenous legend. And I think passed down to again, people, if you're talking about, um, Spanish explorers of the era, I believe it was a year 1500, uh, Spanish explorer, Vicente Yanez uh, Pinzon, comes and, and people of that uh, era hear fantastical stories by the indigenous people. And then they that sparks a legend of where there was an elaborate prank on the, on the indigenous people's part, which would be fantastic in itself. Just to like, yeah, those guys actually went to go look for it. You have a, one legend of a chieftain who liked to cover himself with oils and gold dust. And as an offering or ceremonial procession would go then bathe in the lake it's like, no, we had so much gold that he just would just slather it on himself as gold dust. You know, you have to do that to confront the gods and make yourself worthy. That alone would pique the interests of Europeans. Like, really? There's that much gold dust? You could just do that? You don't even have that. But that's enough of a seed that's passed off by the indigenous peoples. Like, yeah, that's yeah. the legend that we believe in that. That's something. So here you don't have that. But again, this incredible story of this man's life all happened because of a story he told. Yeah. Do I secretly hope that there's some lost city like it out there? Yeah, sure, of course. I love that kind yeah. of stuff too. But it really just, this one points to no. 
the, the fact that it's one person, the entire weight of this entire legend falls on one person and yeah. zero other people to back him up tells me that this is a made up fantasy of a man with a mental illness. That's going to wrap up episode 278 of Astonishing Legends on the Lost City of Akakor. A very special thanks to our returning special guest, Kinga Phillips. Look for Kinga's show, Finding Adventure, on the very local streaming app, or explore this on beyond.tv. That's B-E-O-N-D.tv. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. In the meantime, we just posted a new junk drawer on Patreon, and you can find and subscribe to the other two shows from the Astonishing Legends Network, Scared All the Time, and The Midnight Library, wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Haddam's Paranormal Bookshelf is launching in a little over a month as well, so keep an ear out for that too. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, The Mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi. I'm Ken. Hi, I'm Kirby. Hi, I'm Angie Broxel. This is with no implied promise. I understand this is with no implied promise. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Don't look behind you. K-I-R-B-Y. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design. And our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to AstonishingContact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com. Or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.